Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm your host, Lori Barkman, founder of Small.Big. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself a business transition Sherpa. My mission is guiding entrepreneurs on ways to build value in your business and then benefit by letting it go. On this show, we spotlight the theme of transitions, not only to reward you for your hard work, but also to ensure that you look back on your succession without regret. Catch all the episodes and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to visit SuccessionStories.com to sign up for our newsletter. Here's to your success. When it comes to mergers and acquisitions, I love working on value creation and putting together deals on the buy side and the sell side. On the show, I've spoken with many guests about the financial and strategic benefits of deals. And that's pretty common to focus on the numbers. It's the exciting part. But business is about people. Can a more thorough strategy around the human factor drive greater success? My guest, Jennifer Fondreve, believes the answer is yes. She's the founder and chief humanity officer of Day One Ready, an M&A consultancy. We talked about the importance of the emotional aspect of business change and transformation and how those emotions come into play for a newly merged organization. If you're anticipating a significant company transition, listen to learn more about optimizing the human side of M&A. Jennifer Fondreve, thank you so much for joining me today. One of the amazing things about going digital for events is when you're brought together with someone you haven't met before. And that's what happened with you and me. We met a few months ago. We were both invited to be panelists for the M&A community. We did a panel together and you and I just sort of clicked immediately. And I think probably I'm guessing for a few reasons. One is we have a shared background in C-suite marketing and corporate America. Yep. And we're both now today in the M&A ecosystem. And so that immediately kind of gave us this shared interest. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about the panel that that you and I were on is how we talked about where deals can be successful and not successful. So as we enter into this conversation, just sort of setting the stage that there's a statistic out there that 80% of M&A, of mergers and acquisitions, ultimately fail. And you and I are both on a mission to reverse that trend. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I know we bumped into each other virtually. (laughs) We did. We did a virtual meeting that, that led to other things, which is great. So for me, you know, and for you to help with setting the stage here for the conversation, you know, I focus on the buy and the sell side and working primarily with business owners, both through value and exit planning, transition planning, and then ultimately through the M&A transaction. And what I love about you and your background is you're optimizing the human side of the M&A transaction. And your mission is to help make the deal and the transition successful. So this crossroads, this people side of the deal, I know for me and my show, I'm excited to spotlight it today. It's, it's something that I haven't had enough of on, on my show. And I think in general, and probably what you found is that we don't talk about it enough And I think that's maybe a great place for you to start in sharing your background of what brought you from this corporate background in C-suite marketing and advertising to writing a book about mergers and acquisitions and starting an M&A consultancy. 
You know, it's interesting. I think we were drawn to it for the same reasons, even though we're working in different aspects of mergers and acquisitions. For me, that 80% failure rate, I experienced it three times. I went through three separate multi-billion dollar acquisitions as the head of marketing at three separate companies. And I felt that there were so many opportunities to do it better. And after the first one, so the first acquisition I went through, Nokia acquired a company where I was working as the head of B2B marketing, Navtech, digital map maker. That one is probably more well-known. It was a $9 billion deal. And I highlight that one because it was the first time I experienced an acquisition. And I'm sure you've had the same experience. The first one is like trial by fire. And I, I just felt there were so many opportunities for Nokia and Navtech to do better, but the culture clash, they were B2C, we were B2B. The mission and vision wasn't well laid out in a way that the workforce could get behind. And as a marketer, I just thought there's just, there's got to be a better way to do M&A. But at that point, that was my first one. And then I just, you know, thought about it. But after going through it two more times and having a similar experience by the third one, I had been thinking about a book because uh, I had a lot of leaders around me say, you seem to know how to navigate this. You know, by your third one, Lori, at that point, you're just like, well, I know the playbook. I know how this is going to play out. I've been there. I've seen it. And so it was really after that third acquisition experience, I decided to write a book. I wanted it to be a playbook, right, for both those people who were going through it, but equally for not just survivors, but practitioners, how to do it better. And it was while I was researching for the book that I, when I was talking to CEOs and CFOs and private equity and HR leaders, they, they all consistently said, well, what are you doing besides the book? And I said, well, do you know how hard it is to write a book? <laughs> My only plan was to write a book. I was going to go off and be head of marketing at some other place. But it was a fair question. And you know, from, from doing your own consultancy, you, you have to help businesses be smarter and anticipate things. And it's that third party objective perspective that can help a business owner, whether he's buying or whether she's buying or selling, because oftentimes they don't have that line of sight. They've been so deep into the business, building business, that they can't anticipate or always know what to expect with a merger or an acquisition and all the ways to think about it. So I, I help advise on the people challenges, what you can expect and how that contributes to that 80% failure rate. So I love the fact that, you know, I started chatting because I do think by having the perspective that we have, I think we've got a shot at making M&A more successful. Let's talk about this from both sides. I think the buy side and the sell side. So when you were sharing your experiences just a moment ago about the three different companies and, and entities that were acquired, you were on the acquired side, correct? For all I've three? Been all sides. Uh, all sides. The first one. Second one, I was actually brought in as a change agent to help absorb a marketing team that had been acquired. And that's actually, Lori, where it gave me the idea to write a book because I knew exactly what they were thinking. I knew the questions they had even without asking me. So I had the benefit of having been on both sides. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Because I, I think for people, you know, if you're listening to the show and, and you're in a company and you're thinking about selling, you know, a lot of the folks that I've talked to who are owners of businesses, and let's say these are lower middle market companies, so not necessarily the $9 billion deal, 
Right. But it's it's significant deal. Every deal is significant to its owner and might be the only and the biggest transaction they'll ever do. So it's really, right. really important, especially what I find is if their name is on the door because they care about that legacy and they, they do care about their people. They're excited for the transaction itself, right? There's hopefully a good reward on the other on the other side of these deals monetarily, but there's the human side too. People, a lot of times they'll share with me how they're concerned. They want to take care of their people and they want the transition to go well. So in your experience, whether it was through your own experiences directly or through these conversations that you had in writing your book, let's talk about that. What did you learn from the challenges side when an integration did not go well? And maybe give us some characterization. Was it because it was a competitive environment where one competitor bought another or was it because of other dynamics? First, I want to highlight, because I think you raise an excellent point, when I was researching the book, I wanted to make sure I did the research because I didn't want it to just be my story. And I also wanted to interview mid-market, small mid-market businesses as well to make sure that were the challenges that I saw for like your Fortune 500 similar and or were they unique to Fortune 500? And what was fascinating to me is that the challenges and issues were the same, whether it was a small, mid-market, or Fortune 500, right? Human nature is human nature. And so I'm glad you raised that point, because even though my experience was these multi-billion dollar deals, the same challenges occurred, whether it was you know, a smaller business, a mid-market, or, or a you know, multi-billion dollar business. And what was fascinating to me, and it's why I love working in the mid-market, is the point you made about legacy. The fact that oftentimes you are working with leaders who have built this business on their own. It could be a family business or it could be just they acquired it and have built it up. And so I really have enjoyed helping businesses at that mid-market level because of the focus on legacy and the desire to do right by their people who have built this business over time. So I think there, when I've seen, when I've seen things go wrong, I don't mean to be glib, but oftentimes it's the, what people say, the unexpected people problems. And, and I always say they're not unexpected. You can expect them, right? You just have to prepare for them and, and be aware that People aren't necessarily going to be as excited as you are if you've been working on this deal for a while and suddenly you announce it to your workforce. They aren't going to necessarily be jumping up and cheering and celebrating. This is new news for them. One of the articles I wrote in HBR was around that dynamic, the fact that you have frontline leaders who are not necessarily <laughs> thrilled and overjoyed by this news, but you have executives or business owners or leaders who think this is the best thing. They've been living with that news for a while and working towards it. And you need to anticipate that your, your frontline leaders aren't necessarily going to be in the same place. Now they can get there. And if you've done, if you've done well, if you have an advisor like you, Lori, right, that has helped you work through and be prepared for that. But I, I've actually been told that I'm an M&A whisperer because I help them anticipate and see, here are the people challenges that you are going to face. And the first one is going to be your workforce isn't necessarily going to be at the same place you are. And you need to allow for that time. Even in the valuation, when you're going to hit certain milestones, you need to be prepared. There's going to be an adjustment period, not just integration related, but just purely your workforce embracing and understanding 
why the deal happened, what the vision is for this new company, and what role they can play in it. Those are all the questions that people have immediately. Absolutely. And I can relate also just on a personal level with my experience at a company where I was part of the executive management team that was very involved in the deal and we were getting acquired and and it was months and months of of knowing something that the rest of the company, our teammates did not know. Yeah. And so when it was finally time, because it was a publicly traded company that was buying us, so it had to be held, you know, very close confidence. Yeah. We were not able to share until we were able to share. And that is usually the case for a lot of these situations, even if it's a, a small privately held company, because you know, you just never know what's going to happen with these deals. They might fall apart and you don't want to involve too many people and have, you know, whether it's confidentiality reasons or retention reasons, you don't want people to be nervous and then start to leave because that could disrupt the deal from getting getting done. It's a very tenuous time and you're going through due diligence. You want to make sure that the deal gets to where it needs to go. Just hearing you tell that story, I had a leader say to me, what was hardest for him in exactly that scenario, he said, I, I, I was known for being a transparent leader, very transparent. And he said, I had people on my team look at me like they felt betrayed. And he said, it was just the hardest day. And he said, for all the reasons you've articulated, you know, you can't, but it is hard when that has been part of your brand as a leader, right, to be transparent. So oftentimes I work with leaders to say, you know, here's how to position this so that they understand faster, what what the dynamic was, what led to the decision-making, how the team can operate, where the opportunities are, you know, helping that kind of a leader get the team on board faster because those leaders can often be the ones who are the most frustrated because they've been the transparent leader before and now suddenly their team is looking at them like, why didn't you let us know? Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about the sales side of it. I know it can be very, very tricky when, again, one competitor is buying another. Yes, that that can be particularly hard for a sales team that's now got to trust this other group that they maybe have. I, I can't use the word hate that sounds so strong, but maybe extremely disliked in the past huh. because they were arch rivals in the market. And now they've got to be, you know, corporate friends. How do you help companies think through that? Uh, it's, it's probably one of the biggest challenges. In fact, actually, one of the interviews I did for my book he actually did the advertising for Coors. And if you remember Coors and Miller coming together, I used to work in advertising. So I worked on Coors advertising and it was fascinating to me. I mean, these two beer companies had been at each other's throat for decades. I mean, they literally, having worked on the beer business, they would go in and rearrange the beer so that the Coors beer would be on the front, the Miller beer would be in the back when you'd go to the freezer, right? So now suddenly you're trying to bring them together and say, hey, you know, sell all the beer. We're, we're working with distributors to sell everything equally. And where I've seen that challenge is it's, it's the everything looks good on paper until suddenly you're trying to have a sales team in particular who may have actually built their business by saying, oh, that other brand, they're cheap. They're not the right kind of brand. Our brand is the best. But now suddenly... I'm having to sell my brand plus that cheaper brand. It's, it's, it's a mindset, mindset shift that's required. And so a lot of the work that I do there is helping that mindset shift. And I, I would say um, sales leaders in particular can have a struggle with that because they've built their business on a certain way of doing it. 
And now suddenly we've added into their mix a product that they have spent an enormous amount of time saying isn't a good product. Um, and that's why actually the, the Fast Company article that you and I were talking about earlier, I think that resonated so well because we talk about, you know, what got you here won't get you there. You have to be able to shift the metrics for success change after a, after a deal's gone through and, and the ability to pivot and shift the first step is a mindset shift, being able to see the bigger picture so that you're thinking about it as a portfolio of products you can now offer to your client. But it requires, and that's a lot of the work that I do with the business leaders, helping them understand this is going to take time because you are, you are literally recalibrating the orientation of your company. The Fast Company article that you mentioned, as well as the Harvard Business Review article, I'll put links in the show notes so that people have access to it. But just to go back to the article in Fast Company that you mentioned, it's about rock stars and how people who might have been a rock star at their old company now after the integration are finding themselves in a whole other world. And from whether it's ego or just personality and just getting used to what the new normal is in that new environment, it is really a a big change. And so particularly, I think for salespeople, that's going to be a big challenge because, you know, their motivations are different and necessarily than maybe the hourly worker on the shop floor who's going through the acquisition, whereas they might not see a lot of changes, but certainly people in the front office, as you're talking about marketing and, and advertising, I was thinking about that as well. That makes a lot of sense. Question for you, if somebody's thinking about buying a business and they are looking at buying a legacy business, a mature company that's been around 30, 40 years and it's part of a succession plan, and here they are, the acquirer. Are you brought in typically on that side, or do you find more often that you're brought in from the company that's gotten acquired, or both sides? It's both sides, and, and, and I would love to say it's consistent, you know, there's a certain, but it's both sides, and, and there's a benefit to that, because frankly, uh, and I think the work that I did for the book, I see both sides. I've been on both sides. So I understand what both are trying to uh, achieve. And I have found that that perspective allows me to be better. So if you're a buyer and you're looking to acquire a company, I can anticipate here are the challenges that you can face. The 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 key being, again, uh, and I always rely on my marketing and communications background, how you portray the deal, what drove the deal. But not just painting a vision, but having the people on your team and the other company coming together and all speaking from the same book and also translating that for the company. I found oftentimes, you know, the CEO of the acquiring company speaks. So the acquired company says, well, I I still don't get it, right? You don't understand always that there's different language of companies. And if the CEO of the acquiring says, we're just so excited, can't wait to have you part of our company. If that's not translated for the acquired company, they still, they don't understand, well, what what role will we play? Are we just going to get absorbed into your company and, uh, and, you know, lose half of our leadership? So a key part that I play in that regard is really helping that leadership, articulate the vision in a way that the workforce across the board, both companies understand why the deal was done and then have a clear understanding because the leaders of each department or team can translate that. Here's what that means for operations. Here's what that means for product. Here's what that means for marketing. Because oftentimes, and Lori, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, 
if you keep it at a high level, right? If it's just this, this high level vision, people are thinking, well, what about my job? Am I staying with my team? What's going to happen? Uh, you know, people want to know if their title remains the same. So, uh, you know, the vision has to be high level, but you need to translate it down for people to really understand um, where they're going and how they can contribute. Yeah, that was 100% my experience. We did, I think, a pretty good job, really solid playbook from a company that does a lot of acquisitions. So they had been through this before and they had an excellent playbook. And that's pretty much what happened is, you know, we had to communicate the big why, but then very quickly, you know, for me as a CEO running one of the business units, it was, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for us and our group? And the questions were very much kind of coming down to that personal level. People start to absorb the big picture and then say, what's in it for me? And you're hundred percent right on that. And you know, what's interesting. And I tend to, I, I truly, I don't have a gender bias, but in, in this regard, I've had many um, male CEOs, I'll say that in particular, say, I, I would have never thought that these would be questions that people would have. And, and he said, I think as a female, it's really important that you're in the conversation because women have that perspective that men don't always have. And this comes from male CEOs saying this to me, right? So I think there's a, a, a superpower in, in our ability to, to see that part of the picture that isn't always obvious, you know, uh, to, to, you know, the male gender, if you will. And this has happened repeatedly. So if it had only happened a couple of times, but it's a number of times, and it was a, actually a, a gentleman who said, you know, you're like the M&A whisperer. And, and I do think, uh, I'm sure you bring that same dynamic to the work you do, right? It's, it's just seeing a certain part of the, of the transaction in a way that helps anticipate what some of the challenges might be. Well, I think it's the IQ and the EQ of an M&A deal, ultimately, that's going to yeah. make it successful. And when you're in the due diligence phase and it's very analytical and you're looking at are the numbers going to match up to what we need it to be? Is this a company that we want to purchase? They're going through all the, the legal accounting, right? It's very right-brained, I guess. Right. <laughs> and then this other side of our brain is, well, what's the people implications and how do we make this successful post-integration? And you can't just assume and trust that that's going to happen. You have to get very hands-on with it. So I guess, what, you know, as we wind down this conversation today, Jennifer, just one way to make this actionable, if there are three things that you would recommend someone listening is going to say, okay, I need to do those things. If I'm, if I'm looking to buy a business, what are the top things I should think about? Or if I'm getting acquired, you know, what are some takeaways for either group? Well, I'd say first and foremost, and you and I have talked about this, right? When you're choosing an advisor... Uh, I think it's critical, a couple of components of that, when you're choosing an advisor to help you with that, because I do feel that you need that outside perspective. So even if, um, let's say, you've identified the business, you're buddies with that business, you need an advisor to help you have a third party objective perspective to make you smarter about what are the financials, how is the business really run? Um, because I've just, you know, to your point, when I've seen people go at it on their own, it tends, it tends not to go well because they're blinded by some of the things that are not obvious. So um, advisor first and foremost. And then I guess a 1A to that is in having that advisor, and I'm absolutely biased, you need a human capital 
um, person within that. Typically, your advisors will have great perspective. They'll have strategic relationships, you know, whether it's legal, accounting, um, the, even a marketing perspective. I always highlight that you need to have someone who can help you anticipate what the people challenges will be, because that's going continuously back to our statistic. That's where oftentimes the that 80% failure rate happens because of those people challenges, the, the obstacles around integration. So advisor first, make sure they have a, a, a human capital person as part of that. I think the other thing that, and then again, it's probably related to having the right advisor, right? You really want to be clear on that valuation and make sure that it is realistic and reasonable because where I have seen the failure rate happen is the valuation is well beyond reality. And you have not anticipated for the drop in productivity that tends to happen right when the deal's announced and people are absorbing the news and trying to figure out their role. So you don't have the right time frame, and now you've got a valuation that's unrealistic and it's, it's challenging. And so you end up always already behind the eight ball from the get-go. So people aren't excited, they're feeling behind and the pressure um, can, you know, tends to make people make mistakes. So even your rock stars, as you pointed out, right, stumble because they're still absorbing the news. And so really the, the, the advisor and accurate valuation and an anticipation of the timeline that's also rooted in reality, the, the period of time that you need to let people adjust and absorb the news and, and get up to speed by not factoring that in and having that unrealistic valuation, um, it sets you up for failure more than it sets you up for success. Um, so those would be the the key things that I would highlight. Okay, thank you so much for sharing that. And I appreciated that you had asked me about my thoughts on what I think a good advisor would be. And I thought, I hope it was helpful for you, but I think that just to share, you know, it comes down to strengths and fit. And it's really important. And I think for Jennifer, for people, if they're listening and they're they're thinking about, you know, the human capital side and for you, what you bring to the table, you mm-hmm. know, and how you've shared your strengths. And then, and then fit is, you know, hey, do I want to work with this person? Am I going to enjoy seeing them as part of my team? And so that's obviously very subjective, but I think strengths and fit are really, really important for what people bring to the table. It might be industry specific or it might be special expertise that they have. So thank you for asking for my thoughts on that. And I, and I thought it was an excellent point because as you noted, right, planning, M&A, the negotiations, the financials, reviewing all that can take months, in some cases years, right? So this is someone who you want to trust and, and, and feel is reliable and dependable and who you have a connection with. I absolutely agree because you're going to be spending a lot of time together. A lot of time. <laughs> a lot of time. So is there anything else that we didn't cover today that you wanted to share? You know, I think the only thing that I would say, because people have asked me, well, is your, is your book, you know, is it a playbook? Is it a handbook? Uh, you know, you, you talk about human nature as a challenge. Uh, can you really anticipate all of that? For me, the important, the reason I'm on this mission uh, and do what I do is just to highlight that you have to factor in human behavior. You have to really appreciate that when people are going through change and transformation, it takes them a while to get to acceptance. And we can use the pandemic as a reference point. Think about 
how long it took for people to get from denial to acceptance that this this was going to be a dramatic change. It wasn't going to be over in a couple of weeks. You know, we were all at that stage. But what was fascinating to me was to see, you know, how how it varied by person, how we got to acceptance and how we changed behavior and said, okay, I got to pivot. I got to do this is this is not going back to the way it was. And so I, I highlight that because using, you know, we've now have that proof point. How what, look at it, how things played out in the pandemic when people are faced with dramatic change and are afraid, you have to anticipate it's going to take them a while to get to acceptance. Um, and my book goes into, you know, how do you help people get to acceptance after you've anticipated that? What are the stages that they go through? Uh, and that was the critical part for me of highlighting that aspect of, of change and transformation, you know, as it relates to M&A. Yeah, absolutely. And getting to acceptance isn't really a critical phase. So if you have a quote that you'd like to share about entrepreneurship or leadership, I would love to hear it. So I, it's going to sound very cliche, but I love the quote. It's attributed to Mahatma Gandhi is be the change you want to see in the world. More than anything, I have always felt that as a leader, you have to role model the behavior you expect of other people. If you don't role model that in every way, in word, action, and, and deed, at 24-7, um, you know, I, to me, that is absolutely critical as a leader. And I try and live by that, um, you know, that vision that Mahatma Gandhi had, I, I just thought it was, it was a, a brilliant take and how all leaders really should think about their role. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on Succession Stories with me today. If people want to follow up with you, someone listening wants to find you online, what's the best way to do that? I would say first, definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm active on that platform and uh, put out uh, consistently a lot of content there. Um, or my website uh, is uh, a great place to see all the ways in which I, I work in this space. Uh, and that's jenniferjfondreve.com. But uh, I've through through uh, appearing on podcasts, I've I've really enjoyed having people connect with me on LinkedIn. It's been it's been fun to see, um, you know, the the different ways that people you know listen to a podcast and say, "Hey, want to connect with you?" So uh, would would encourage that. Absolutely, Jennifer. Thanks so much for being on Succession Stories today. It was great to talk to you as always. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Lori. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, the potential net proceeds of a transaction, and your financial needs after you leave the business, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand these numbers, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Take the next step by requesting an initial meeting to begin planning for your business transition and strategic exit today. Request a call with me by visiting smalldotbig.com. That's smalldotbig.com. I look forward to speaking with you.